express, uh, I guess, really just some thoughts that we were able to share with Danny from last week of him being here and how much we enjoyed the extended time that we had together with him. His, his schedule was a bit grueling. He had meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting and then left to go home. Um, but was very gracious and I think all were able to benefit from his care and involvement with us as a church as well as involvement with us as individuals. He had nothing but appreciative and very gracious things to say about the church, about your engagement and pursuit of him, of how well he felt cared for and drawn in to the church as he was here, how he felt cared for by the leaders, the different leaders, the, the small group leaders, the covenant group guys who got to meet with them on Sunday night and really was just overwhelmed by the presence of God here and what he was able to enjoy. So he, I'm sure he would want me to express his appreciation to you and how he and Melody felt just being able to share the weekend with us. Uh, this morning, I want to continue and share what I, I think, I always say this hesitantly, will be the, the last in this series of why sovereign grace affiliation. Uh, what we've done in the last few weeks through this month of July is, is just share, I've really just been sharing some things the Lord has, has put in my heart concerning our thoughts together in this category of considering joining with Sovereign Grace Ministries and the, churches, the church family that they have and what they're trying to accomplish in the kingdom. Um, I'm sure there are thoughts here that could go on forever. Uh, we could talk about some of these issues forever, but this, I'm just emptying out what I feel like God has put in my heart to share. So today is the last of those elements that I felt the Lord wanted us to talk about. Uh, the message this morning is entitled, Unity as a Priority. And it has to do with how we make decisions as a church and then how we walk them out. And unity as a priority would reflect, I think, how the Lord wants us to walk into all the endeavors that we're a part of together. But also how the Bible places unity as a priority. When we read through some of these scriptures today, we're going to see that unity really is a priority. And I want to just begin by, by thanking many of you that are here. I want to encourage some and thank so many. Thank you to so many of you who have embraced this process that we have introduced of considering sovereign grace and considering affiliation, the way in which you have involved yourself in the process as we've asked you to pray Pray for this. Pray for what we're considering. Pray for the leadership in the church. Ponder. Ask questions. Go before God. Bring those questions before us. Uh, embrace materials. Study. See who Sovereign Grace is about. Uh, recently, there's just been a, a great number of you who have done that and serve the church by your doing that, and by your own engagement, as we'll see today. But also, some of you have been doing this for years. I mean, this is not a quick process for us by any means. And, and here in our midst, there are Elders and pastors and small group leaders who have been pilgrimaging to conferences for years now. Going back, Peter and I began in 1997, and then the, the elders in 98, and the small group leaders in 99. Uh, the church began to attend conferences, whether it's the celebration conferences that many of you have attended, or the, uh, the worship conferences, the new attitude conferences. Just, I think Sovereign Grace needs a travel agent is what they really need. 
there's just been a lot of opportunity for us to go and visit and be a part of that. And so many of you have embraced those opportunities uh, at, at personal expense, whether it's been time and time off or, or finances to embrace being a part of those trips with the church. But it, it has served the church because we are considering something that many of you would know personally and would not be a stranger in those categories. But by way of, of unity, that would be a reflection of unity. But also, I, I would want to also pass along thanks. I think all of the, the elders and the pastors and the covenant group leaders also would, would have a great deal of thanks for the way in which so many of you have lived your life toward the church. The way in which you have lived a, a unified life in the purpose of the church. You know, when you're a part of a church, you know, things, things change. They don't always stay the same. You guys, many of you that have been here for years that have embraced changes in the vision of the church. Where, where at one point, you know, kind of the flavoring of the church was one way and God has made us more aware of other dynamics of truth that he made as a priority for us to pursue. And, and many of you that have been in both of those settings have given yourself to embrace the vision that God has given in our hearts to accomplish together. Uh, changes in leadership. Many of you that are here have been through a couple of pastors. You have walked with different sets of people being set before you as leaders. You have embraced small group leaders as a dynamic and role in your lives. You have embraced new leaders. You've embraced young leaders. You know, I know we've kind of talked about some of our transition, but some of us just are forgetting what we've walked through in the past. Uh, You know, that at some point, Peter was a new leader. In the church. And at some point he was young. I know that's, I wasn't even going to say that because it's hard to believe. But, um, you know, when he actually began to lead and was asked to lead in the church, he was younger than I am right now. Were you ever really younger than I am? (laughs) Philosophically, it's impossible, isn't it? Um, Just a thought. (laughs) Uh, You know, when, when I began to serve in leading in the church, I was younger than Matt and Jeff right now. And, and you guys have been tremendously kind and caring and supportive and encouraging in such a way that, that leaders have been able to lead with, with all of our deficiencies, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our lack of insight, with all of our uh, lack of ability to juggle the balls that are needed in order to care for you. There's been a great deal of love extended as, as we have not met your expectations, and many times, I mean, you guys are wonderfully kind and very supportive, but, you know, if you really sat down and thought about it, there's a lot of things that, that you just kind of felt, had to overlook, you know, or had to say, well, you know, I know that was well-intended, but to, you know, why didn't I get a phone call, or uh, all kinds of things like that, that you have been committed to this body in the face of, of our weaknesses to lead you. You've been committed to this body, to the unity of this body, in the midst of personal conflict with each other. You know, there have been relationships that have been a challenge to you as you've been here. There have been some that have gone well and some that have not gone well. There have been heartbreaking situations that, that some have said, you know, that has occurred, but I'm committed to walk with this body. And so that, that is an expression of unity. That's what unity really is supposed to look like. And when God had the intention that we would walk together, and you look at the New Testament and how much it says about the church, and primarily what it's speaking of is the local church. 
A church where there are real relationships in real time, real personalities, real weaknesses, real sin in our midst, and yet to remain committed to each other is an expression of unity. And when we come to the scriptures, uh, we find out that the Bible's not casual about unity. It is strongly expressive about the importance of unity. And, and many of you, if you've grown up at all in the church world, you, you know that for some folks, that's, that sort of unity, all those things I just listed, would not be the experience for many folks in the body of Christ. It's a casual association today in, in the world of the church, of relating to a church and being involved with the church and staying committed and staying there. I mean, if, if none of those things would run you off from a church, which in many cases any of those things would, changing vision, changing leadership, leadership weaknesses, uh, conflicts in the church, just the stuff gets old to us, doesn't it? I mean, you get familiar. When something gets familiar, we just want something new. I mean, that's the American way. And to stay committed to people when it's not new anymore. When the newness of the church wears off. You know, for many people, the newness of this place will wear off with you. And then there's familiar faces and familiar weaknesses. And you, you did that again to me. And I'm bumping into these issues again. And in those moments, you kind of really learn what you're made of. And you learn what kind of a passion do I have for unity. Do I have a passion to walk together with the local body of Christ... Or do I just want something new? Or do I want idealism? Or do I want only the good things? What unity has to do with wanting everything that comes with being joined to other sinful human beings. That's what the church is. It's a supernatural work of sinful human beings joined together for the glory of God. And that, I think, is an expression of why unity matters so much for God. What he is capable of doing to take people who... If you will, our, our sin causes us to live in like a centrifuge. You know what a centrifuge is? One of those things that you spin it real fast and it separates stuff, but the acceleration creates a force that pushes everything to the edge. Well, that's how we are. And in the sinfulness of our own existence, we just want to be repelled from each other. There's just plenty in us that wants to repel. But the glory of God comes in and takes people who live in a fallen centrifuge and he unites us together. And that's a display of the glory of God. And that's why God is passionate about that. Let's look at two passages today. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays for his disciples the last night that he is together with them. And I just want to draw out of here the importance that in this prayer of all that he prays, that he places on unity for his people and how we walk together and accomplish his will. So I'm going to skip through some of this prayer and hit a few particulars. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now 
Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look in verse 11. Now, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's praying for his disciples now. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, that is an amazing statement. Skip down to verse 20. He continues this thought. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And there's other elements that are in this passage, but I think you can see Jesus takes a great deal of this prayer for his disciples on the last night that he is together with them and focuses on what we have to determine is a very important dynamic. Not something that's casual, not something that, well, it's a take-or-leave-it proposition, but something in the heart of God that is near and dear, so much so that in a limited amount of space of the last prayer that he would pray together with his disciples, that they would be one is pretty critical to him. Ken Hughes says, Christ's prayer in John 17 is captivating. Because it shows us the kinds of prayers he offers for us now in heaven. The overall thrust of verses 11 through 19, in which Jesus prays for his disciples, is that the disciples should relate properly to one another and to the non-believing world. We do not have to argue the importance of this topic. Quite clearly, unity is a priority. It is something to be pursued. It's something to be aimed at. And the Bible encourages that you and I would maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's not just something that we just kind of leave it alone. It'll take care of itself. It's something that you and I are to strive to experience together in such a way that it glorifies and magnifies God. You know, in this particular passage, uh, we, we get educated about a couple of things. The purpose for unity and the effect of unity. The effect of unity is that the world may know, Jesus says, that, Father, you sent me. There's something about accomplishing, taking selfish, individual, I want it my way, rebellious individuals, and bringing them together with each other accomplishes something that displays the reality that the Father sent the Son. Now, you know, this is one of those, my ways are not your ways statements. You know, we might say, well, Lord, there's got to be other ways that really would communicate that more effectively. Yet, in the heavenly realities, that's how God communicates that the Father sent the Son. Through the visible and real demonstration of unity that exists in the body of Christ. Now, all of us would feel a sense of weight and some sense of passion that the world would hear the gospel. That lost people would be affected. We have lost loved ones. 
We have neighbors, we have friends, we watch lives get decimated by sin. We have people that we care about their eternal destinations. And we are a people who are passionate about evangelism, about people who are lost coming to know Christ. But, you know, sometimes we're, we're passionate about the end result without being passionate about the means of getting it accomplished. None of us want to see anybody lost, eternally lost. But how many of us are truly passionate about realizing that in this passage is a means of people seeing the reality of what will save them? In this passage, the way you and I walk together is evangelistic. This is, this is why, I don't, I don't want to chase this thought, but this is why we teach a lot on the church here. This is why we teach so much about sanctification. This is why we teach so much about how we walk together. Evangelism is not just a class on how you explain the basic points of coming to know Christ. That's part of evangelism. But the thing that gives evangelism its volume is not apologetics. It is the church. That's what, gives, that's what gives the proclamation of the gospel volume. Without the church demonstrating the reality of the presence of the Spirit, demonstrating changed lives, demonstrating in this passage unity, the gospel is only whispered. John 3.16 sounds about like this. It's not until the church becomes a church that John 3.16 becomes a loud proclamation to the world. And so in this passage, if you're not going to be passionate about evangelism, it's not just exchanging information with the world that we're to be passionate about. It's about how you and I live towards each other that is evangelistic into the world. So there's, there's an effect here of unity, but there's a purpose for unity that I think really falls underneath what Jesus began in this prayer. This is the umbrella under which unity has to be observed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That, I believe that's the umbrella under which our whole lives exist underneath that umbrella. Obviously, unity exists underneath that umbrella. That's the purpose, that this might glorify you. And the prayer that Jesus prays is, Father, glorify me so that in doing that, you may glorify you. What's the real reason behind his prayer? That the Father be glorified. That the Godhead be glorious. You know, when you and I pray and ask God for things in our lives, that does need to be the umbrella under which we're praying. You know, when we pray, and it's not wrong, God bless my life. Bless my life, God. The Bible would want you to pray that way. But the motive for that is, God, bless my life, that my life might glorify you. It's not just, I just want to be the recipient of, of ease and comfort and stuff and benefit for me personally, and I've lost sight of a bigger picture. God, bless my finances. God, bless my family. God, bless my career. That my life might glorify you. Now, what that opens up in this prayer, you do know the timing on this prayer. The hour has come. The hour for what? To win the lottery? That wasn't the hour, was it? The hour for me to go to the cross and die a bloody, murdered death. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And that opens up a whole other realm of our prayers when we begin to pray about our lives bringing glory to God. You know, the psalm that we sang, uh, 
you know, whether it's in times of blessing or whether it's in times of difficulty, that we would turn back to praise because it's all for the glory of God in our lives. And so this is the umbrella under which unity exists. Unity is for the glory of God. It's a demonstration of the glory of God that God could come win us in such a way that we want to walk together even to the denial of ourselves, which is the second point I want to get to under this umbrella. Unity is accomplished through self-denial. Unity is accomplished through self-denial. There's a bigger picture than my life here being served. The body of Christ is about something bigger than the individuals that are in it. And in this moment for Jesus, he is expressing and living out the self-denial that even exists in the Godhead. So that when God creates the plan for the redemption of man, the Son embraces the role of being the sacrifice to bring reconciliation. And the Holy Spirit embraces the role of being the revealer of that plan and of the Son for the rest of our existence with Him. There's a unity that exists in the Godhead, and that unity is expressed even in Jesus in the passage. Turn to Philippians. Or actually, I have it in your notes if you have that. But if you don't, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1 and through all the way through 8 is a demonstration of this attitude out of which Jesus is praying. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying what is in these verses. And, and the, the attitude of his life generates this kind of prayer because he is living to deny himself in such a way that something bigger, something of the expression of him being unified in the Father's purpose is going to be expressed in his life. Father, glorify your Son, through the cross and the resurrection, that you may receive glory. And that needs to be our prayer. But this is where this comes from. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. These are, these are words of unity. The same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is that one purpose? Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That is the one purpose. You and I are drawing breath today in order to glorify God. That's the one purpose under which all of us exist. So unity exists underneath that same umbrella in order to glorify God. Now, listen to what comes here next, because Paul is seeking this unity for the Philippians. Here's what's going to be necessary in order for that unity to be experienced. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, which we're seeing demonstrated in John 17. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus says about his disciples in this prayer, Father, make them one, even as we are one. This, in Philippians, is it's the ground upon which the unity of the Godhead exists. The Son, who exists fully in the form of God, but does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but would rather empty himself in order to serve something more glorious. Now, you and I can stand and say, no, well, what could be more glorious than Jesus seated on the throne in heaven, ruling over his creation? Redemption, apparently. The emptying of himself and taking on the form of a servant, being cruelly treated, rejected, hated, mocked, and scorned, tortured, and killed, apparently, is more glorious than him continuing to reign in heaven without having experienced that. See, there's, there's an existence in the Godhead that seeks for the glory of God. And there's an expression of unity that, that filters into who God is. And then Jesus prays this prayer about us. Let them be one like we are one. And that's a mouthful, isn't it? When you see this kind of thing demonstrated... And I'm, I'm going to move this in a moment just to, to where we are as a church, but, but don't run past the realities that exist in our own lives for unity to be real and that are in Philippians here. This attitude needs to touch our marriages. If we're married, we're called to be one with another person and a unique oneness that's expressed in marriage. And that's Fellowship of the Spirit, the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That needs to be something we are aiming at as husbands and wives. We are aiming at that. We're intentional about it. We're trying to cultivate it. We want it to grow. We want it to be more clear in our lives as days go by. Now listen, all of us know, you know, we, we build our marriages sometimes like we build a house. The, the day it's first completed is the best day, and the days after that are days of deterioration. That's not how God builds. God would want us to grow and increase in our oneness. That The day we stood at an altar and said, I do, that should be the beginning point of something that increases in our experience of how we walk together and experience oneness as a couple. But to do that, we'll need the rest of these verses. Husband, wife, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Well, a lot of marriages could receive incredible healing if that were the only verse in the Bible, couldn't they? I mean, come on, I mean, let's be honest. Every bit of marriage counseling that I've ever been a part of is because of selfishness. Period. You don't have to like, well, I've read 800 books on marriage counseling. and uh, There's just one thing that happens in marriage. Selfishness. And it erodes and destroys marriages. But 
here we find a, a passion for unity that's in the Bible. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is not just a casual suggestion. This is to be an obsession for us as the people of God. See, when we become obsessed with this, can you see the proclamation that gets made to the world? When we are obsessed with walking with one another in these types of dynamics. Now, this is true. It's not just true in marriages. It's true amongst the leadership in the church. That this needs to characterize how we walk together, how we relate to one another. There's a demonstration that's needed for the church to benefit from in all those who are called to lead in whatever capacity. That would demonstrate unity. Well, unity for leaders only comes when I'm going to walk as a pastor with other pastors, other leaders in the church, covenant group leaders walking together, walking with one another, walking with the other leaders in the church, not from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. To not look out for our own personal interests. Do you know how hard it is? To be in a group of people and overcome your personal interests. Just ask some of the counselors who were at kids camp. <clears throat> how those groups of kids do? Just regarding others is more important than themselves. No, 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 you go first. Yeah. No, really, I insist that you be first in line. You know, you watch this as kids. I mean, if they had weapons, there would be dead bodies on the way to get in line to things. It'd be a bloody massacre. And so from, from inception, from when we're just little bitty and we have a group of people, there is something about we're looking for our interest in this thing. And, and that can be the case whether it is being kids in a group or whether it's being part of a church. We are looking for our interest in this deal. And decisions that get made. Now let's move this towards just the whole thought of our pursuit of affiliation. It's, it's awful hard not to look through the lens of, okay, well, what does this mean to me? Okay, I see some good stuff in this for me. I'm, I'm all for it. Or I don't know, this might be discomforting for me. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but unity has to move me to the periphery and the purpose of God and His glory into the center. So that when I relate to other people in any of these settings, my passion is for the glory of God. And my unity with others, and not looking just to my own personal interest, and what will serve me the best, what will posture my life the best, what will bring me the most comfort, what will be the least inconvenient for me, all those dynamics need to be set aside, and I need to have a passion for the glory of God as we walk together and relate together. And that's a challenge to do. But Jesus blankets us with this prayer. Father, make them one the way we are one. Now, let me, let me just say what that oneness doesn't look like in the Godhead. <clears throat> I think I'll put these words in your outline. That unity doesn't look like Toleration. Does anybody glance at the Godhead and think what you see is the Son tolerating the Father? The Spirit tolerating the Son? Is, is that, would that describe the unity that exists in the Godhead? Acquiescence. Indifferent acceptance. 
I mean, can you imagine the son being approached by the father? You know, that song we sing, what wisdom once devised a plan. So the father devises this plan for redemption and approaches the son. And the son is just kind of postured and having on a, chewing on a carrot stick. Yeah, whatever. I mean, is that how you see the Godhead? That the father has a purpose and there's just this, yeah, sure, just let me know when to go. Is that how the son responded? And then when the father and the son have accomplished this work, the Holy Spirit now coming to dwell in us. You know, do, you think the, do you think the Holy Spirit argued that point a little bit? Do you think maybe he said, look, look, I'm going to go along with this. But let's just get a couple things straight. You know, Father, you, you've stayed here in heaven. Son, yeah, you went to earth for a temporary period of time. But you're asking me to dwell with these guys forever. <laughs> you think the Holy Spirit raised that issue and said, you know, but look, you know, but for the sake of the team, I- I'm going to go along with this. OK, I'm going to go along with this one for the sake of the team. Uh, that, that doesn't look like the Godhead, does it? Neutrality. You think there's any neutrality in the Godhead? Just as they walked through creation and redemption, there was, well, I'm kind of I'm kind of in the middle on this thing, you know. Well, whatever. You know, I'm not going either way. You know, that's not what unity looked like in the Godhead. Dispassionate acknowledgement. Well, sure. No, I mean, it sounds good. Sure, that's okay. Let's do that. Father, make them one the way we are one. Well, how, how, how does the Godhead look when it comes to these things? Well, I think it's kind of given away in John 17, verse 1. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I don't hear in that any of those words. I don't hear toleration. I don't hear uh, just going along with I don't hear dispassion. I hear eagerness in the Son of God. In the face of the bloody cross... And the mockery that was about to occur in his life. I hear eagerness. It's time, Father. It's time. Let's do this thing. Hold that picture in your mind. That's what unity looks like. Church, that's what unity looks like. Now let's, let's translate that unity into the local church setting of who we are. Year 2005, Lakeview Christian Center seeking to walk together and make a decision about whether we should affiliate with another group of churches. Father, make them one, like we are one. Okay, what does our decision look like? Does it, does it look like toleration? Does it look like acquiescence? Does it look like indifferent acceptance? Well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to leave the church or anything, you know, if you decide to do that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm okay with it. No, I'm kind of neutral on the whole thing. Uh, I mean, you know, you guys just decide and, and you know, it's, it's going to be all right. We're, you know, we'll be cool, whatever. Does that look like, Father, the hour has come? You know, one of the things that we have intentionally sought to do as we have led this process and, have in, and in the most recent months been more pointed in asking you no matter who you are in this church, to be involved in the process. It's not because the leaders couldn't decide. 
it's because we have an opportunity for unity. We don't always have those. Well, I guess in some ways we always have those opportunities. But this would be a loud, pronounced opportunity. And in that moment, we can, you know, this is what Jesus prays for us. This is what he was praying for us then. This is what he's praying for us now. Father, make them one, even as we are one. And so I believe God would want to do something in us that wouldn't just be this casual, well, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be all right with that. I'm from a distance. Have you all decided yet? Approach. But it would be us owning something together in such a way that when we move together, we move together. And we don't just move together in concept. We move together in passion. With our hearts urgent for the same things. And you know what? That can only happen when you stick your heart out on the line with all the risk involved, with all the challenge involved, with all the issue of faith involved, and let God touch your heart in that moment. I believe if my heart is really available to the purpose of God, God will give me a heart for His purpose. So I don't just have to be in a church going along with the programs, going along, you know, whatever. And not that anybody, you know, there's been no sense that we've had any concern about that there would be a schismatic problem here where someone would be, well, I'm just not for this and, and, and we're going to bail on this or we're going to protest it, we're going to be against it. We have no sense of that. But we have an opportunity here for unity, not just for we'll go along with it. We have an opportunity for us to step into the purpose of God together wholeheartedly and express something that is an answer to the prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. When we would walk together, it would be with a passionate fury to see the glory of God accomplished. I like this thought from Kent Hughes. He says, this unity does not happen automatically or easily. It must be worked at. When a man and woman become one in Christ in marriage, there must be a commitment to oneness. An ongoing commitment to communicate, to share their souls, to spend time together, to have the deepest relationships possible in body, soul, and spirit. Such a relationship is unutterably wonderful when experienced. But many people never attain this. Not because they do not want it, but because they are not committed to working toward it with God's help. Not only do many people in marriages do not attain this, but many churches do not attain this kind of unity. What a sad, sad thing that the Son of God prayed for exactly that kind of unity. And the church has deprioritized it. And we don't need to own things in such a way that we are eager for their accomplishment. The same is true of the unity of believers in this world. We must be committed to scaling the heights, committed to the apostolic faith, and committed to humbly serving one another. That is to be and needs to be our attitude. Now, let me take you to one other passage here the next ten minutes and walk us through God's amazing means of accomplishing this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Jesus prays passionate prayer that there would be unity in His body, unity like in the Godhead. Now, this passage is going to highlight for us Another one of those examples where God's ways simply are not man's ways. Because God creates unity and sameness through diversity and differences. <laughs> that would not be the way that we would do this. Would it? Let's make us all exactly the same, therefore we can be the same. And God says, no, I'll make you all different and then say, now all you all come together and be the same. Only God would do that to us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, varieties, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, now notice here, we go right back to the Godhead here, because you have in this passage tucked away the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, don't you? Paul intentionally using that language the way he did to highlight that there would be differences with us, but it's the same God that unified God, make them one as we are one, who's about to accomplish that unity by then turning around and saying, there's many members and they all function differently. They have different gifts in the body. And he goes through and he lists those gifts in those next few passages. Look in verse 11. Referring to all these gifts, he says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. So the one Spirit appoints to us diversity. We are appointed to have diversity in the body of Christ. We are appointed to it. Different gifts that serve the body in different ways, but in all the variety of serving bring about oneness. That's how God's doing this thing. It's a design plan on his part. In verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members. Don't you love this contrast? One but many. One but many. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. In verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Make sure you get this. The body doesn't consist of one member. It's just not one member. It's not one member duplicated over and 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 over again. We're all exactly the same, function exactly the same. Therefore, unity really isn't that much of a challenge. Now, God's design was, let me make them different. Let me give them different abilities. Let me appoint them to different tasks. Let me give them different responsibilities in the body of Christ so that they may walk together. That sounds like more of a challenge to me. Yet in the wisdom of God, it's exactly how he brings about the answer to the very prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. Variety that would accomplish unity. In verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body. God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Look down in verse 27. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, here comes a variety again, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, and on and on and on. Now, I want to make two quick points out of this 
revelation that God gives. In this, in this context for you and I, that we're considering making a decision about affiliating with another group of churches and inviting other leadership influence into this church and becoming a resource and serving others outside of this local body. As we consider doing that, have any of you been tempted to think that your part in that is insignificant? Well, you know, I mean, I'm new to the church, you know, I've only been here a year or so, and I'm sure whatever you guys decide, that that's, that's going to be fine. Or, you know, I'm really not a leader in the church, you know, I, you know, you guys get together as leaders, y'all talk about that, and you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll make the right decision. That, that sounds to me a little bit like, well, you know, because I'm not an I, you know, I'm not really that significant in the church. Um, that simply is not the way the Bible sounds. I'm going to differentiate between leadership gifts and others in the church in a moment. But that thought is not the way the Bible sounds. There is no indifference for anybody in the body of Christ. There is no indifference for any of us. There is passionate, carrying the weight, being concerned. That's what the body of Christ looks like. That's how it's supposed to look. Let me tell you when, when the ear will suddenly find itself wanting to express an opinion. The day the eye decides something that costs the ear something. In that moment, the ear will have a huge interest what's going on. Do you remember the Israelites leaving Egypt? The, the evidence would support the fact that they were not all fully convinced that they should be doing this. It was the will of God. Moses led them. He fulfilled his responsibility. But it was one thing to have ten plagues visited and to be leaving loaded down with gold and all the stuff from Egypt. And in that day say, this is God. This is so God. Man, this is God. This decision. Moses, we are liking this, baby. You are our man. And they get out in the wilderness. They get a little thirsty. What do they sound like in that moment? See, as soon as, the, as soon as the ears got a little sunburned, all of a sudden, the ear spoke up. <laughs> the ear was kind of like, hey, whatever you guys. Yeah, Moses, that's cool, whatever. Now, listen carefully, because I don't believe the biblical order would have been that the masses should have overridden Moses. Moses had God's word. They were to follow Moses. He was appointed to lead them. But they needed to own what Moses was leading them into. Every one of them. Because there would be a day when that decision was going to be tested. There will be a day when this decision is going to be tested. And some who didn't embrace the process in that day are going to want to be heard. And the lack in that moment is going to be an issue of faith that should have been apprehended before we left Egypt. So that in the day of testing, there would be sufficient faith. We'd sound more like Joshua and Caleb than we would like the other ten spies. Now, let me tell you why this is significant. Moses has God's word. We all know that. We have great seats to watch this thing unfold. 
We know he's got God's word. <clears throat> the guys walking with him, though, are in a little different posture. You and I are reading it in the Bible. They're experiencing it and having to kind of take his word for it. And Moses, and well, who appointed you boss over us anyway? Remember all this stuff happening? See, being led has days where we really like it and days where we really don't like it. And in that day when we really don't like it, we can, we can become destructive in our not liking it. I mean, I mean <clears throat> so I was praying and studying this week. This letter came back to my mind. I'm not going to tell you who it is. It's just somebody who was in the church, who as we began to talk, I guess a month or two ago at least, about sovereign grace and the pursuit of that, and ask you guys to pray, pray for us. This is a letter that was sent by somebody in a covenant group to their covenant group leader that they passed along to me. I'm writing to tell you about an interesting prayer time I had on Saturday. I was praying for Keith and the other leaders and thinking about how difficult it must be to lead a bunch of people like us, <laughs> however Christian we think we are. The Lord directed me to read Exodus, and in doing that, I started thinking about Moses. Now, Keith was kind of in that same position. Um, I don't really think of that, but I had thoughts about sovereign grace and that our journey toward that end was not going to be an easy one. I wondered if I would be one of the ones who just wanted things to stay like they are. Like it's not so bad in Egypt, better than dying in the desert. Would I be willing to give up my idols or bring them with me or just make some new ones? I wanted to think that I would be right there at the foot of the mountain praying and standing firm. I wanted to think all of us would be. But I didn't get that feeling. I felt that we would wind up complaining, opposing, doubting, resenting. Then God revealed that the purpose of the last few messages was to prepare us for the journey. This is, this is not these messages. This is back when we were doing the Kingdoms in Conflict series that this was given. That we, uh, it was really, and, it, that, and, and that if we really trust the Lord and respond to the word that was given in the messages, we would have a very different trip than the one the Israelites had. Also, that God will be glorified. Oddly, both of those who follow obediently and also those who don't. He said in his word, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He also impressed on, my, on me that it wasn't Moses' decision to head to another land, and it certainly wasn't the eager Israelites. It was the will of the Father, his decision, for his pure and holy purpose. Um, just address why we have led this process the way we have. I, I'm pretty sure, as, as we have talked and, and listened and, and tried to draw you guys out on where you are, that there is support for us to, to make this decision. But let me, just, let me just turn the volume up a little bit. Because we're not just after support. We're after unity. We have a great opportunity to walk into the purposes of God with a passion. To climb the heights, as Ken Hughes says. To walk together to see the glory of God accomplished. Now, you know when that's going to matter the most? It's going to matter the most a year from now or two years from now. When something happens... That would not have happened had we not made this decision to relate to Sovereign Grace Ministries. In that day, in that day, I'm going to be able to stand, and I believe all the other leaders are going to be able to stand and say, Lord, 
We heard from you. You led us to make this decision. And if there's no water around right now, then we're going to trust that supernaturally you're going to provide that for us because we're where you called us to be. But if you don't own that same sense because you didn't wrestle with God to get from him what he was saying in that day, you're just going to panic. And panic's not a good thing for the body of Christ. Panic is a declaration of, God, I don't trust you. So that's why it's important that we walk in unity together. Everybody walks in unity. And let me make a little differentiation here. In this 1 Corinthians passage, there is a design element that's in decision-making for the body of Christ. Everybody is not gifted the same way in the body of Christ. God intended it to be that way. God intended that there would be leaders who their responsibility and their gifting that would make them to have to be responsible would be in the area of leading, leading involving making decisions. And so in that equation, and then really all throughout Scripture, there is an admonition for leaders to lead. Romans chapter 12 talks about gifts there. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal. If you're given to lead the body of Christ, then serve the body by leading. When we look throughout, and I'll put several passages you can go back and look up, whether it's Ephesians 4 passages that we looked at a few weeks ago, about God giving gifts so that the church could be led and equipped into the purpose of God. God designed the church to be led that way. When we, when we take apart leadership decisions, let's back up with me to Acts for just a second. Acts chapter 13 gives us a quick snapshot of a leadership decision. Now, please notice what the Bible highlights in this strategic moment. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Well, those would be Ephesians 4.11 gifts. Those would be leaders in the church. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, and then there's a whole list there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, if you read this too fast, you miss out on what kind of a decision was this for the Antioch church. Well, it was a decision led by those who were called to lead. It was a decision that was going to cost the church in Antioch. If you, if you study the church in Antioch, you will find out, I believe, the nearest and dearest people in that list of, of names was... Barnabas and Saul of Tarsus. Because if you remember, when the gospel goes to Antioch, some people start getting saved, the first guy that the, the leadership in Jerusalem sends to Antioch is Barnabas. Barnabas was your first pastor. My children got saved under Barnabas' ministry. I got married. Did my counseling. And then Barnabas brings Saul into that equation. So the guys who built the church in Antioch were Barnabas and Saul. And then these men pray together, and the revelation of the Holy Spirit to them is take those two and send them. Was this a day of cost for the church in Antioch? You better believe it. We just don't, we just don't get the inspired word on what that was like for that church to have to work through that. Acts chapter 15. Leadership in the church. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. 
unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they went and they had conversation. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, and, he, and Peter recounts, recounts what's happened, what the Holy Spirit's been doing through his ministry and shares with them what's, what's taken place. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Now, James is about to lead. James is about to make a decision here. There's been debate. There's been discussion. The leadership team has met in Jerusalem. They have discussed. They have welcomed input and information into this decision-making process. Peter has stood up and he has spoken. James is about to lead a decision here. And James says, this is what we're deciding. Who made these decisions in Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 15, in Ephesians chapter 4? It is the leadership that makes those decisions. Now, here's where I think this is important about unity. God steps back and says, you know, there's no way that people who live in a centrifuge spiritually are ever going to become one. But what I'll do in order for them to become one is I'll make them all different intentionally. And gift them differently, intentionally, so that when they exercise their giftings and fulfill who I've made them to be, then they can be one. I think in that equation, it means that in, in this hour, for us as a church, I think leaders need to exercise the gift of leading. I think what we have done carefully and sought to do this carefully is to involve the entire church for the sake of unity and for this very real reason, uh, I think all the leaders would agree. Even though we acknowledge that there is the gift of leadership, that gift of leadership in every one of us is wrapped in this flesh with all its weaknesses, with all of our limited sight, with our biases and our experiences. And so one of the things that we have sought to do is to open up our lives to receive the input of the body because we need to receive the input of the body. There are insights in your lives that we need in order to make a decision. But, but there's a, a little bit of a nuance here that I don't want us to overlook, because I, I think the Bible is pretty clear on this. What we have not been doing is polling you to see if we could get enough of a vote. What we have been doing is taking the temperature of those that we're responsible to care for and lead, so that when we do exercise decisions, we don't run off and leave anybody. We don't harm anyone with those decisions. We don't make them hastily. We don't... Make them in such a way that it makes it more difficult for you to follow in the future in the way in which decisions are made. So the way in which we have led through this is in no way intended to negate the gift of leadership that's given to the church. And in the hour of making decisions, to honor the diversity that God has created, I don't think what we want to do is ask the person who's not gifted to lead to make that decision. I think that would be an, an ignoring of what the Bible clearly says, God's going to accomplish unity by creating diversity. 
And in the day where decisions like this need to be made, the body all needs to participate, but leaders need to exercise the gift of leading. That's how they serve the body. That's how unity gets accomplished. Schisms get created when you empower everybody to lead the church. That's how schisms get created. That's why many churches are so divided, because there's a lack of leadership, because it's an ignoring of what the Bible has clearly said about how to lead. So I share that with you this morning. We're going to stop because I want us to get to the class this morning. Um, Just in relation to this series and what we've been doing, what we've been considering, we have a great opportunity before us to walk in unity. Let's not have any of us who are just acquiescing here. We're just kind of going along with something. Let's press in with God and say, God, ignite my heart with the faith for this decision so that I'm going to walk in and fulfill it. Even in the day that we get to the promised land and we find out there's walled cities and there's lots of big people walking around that land. What are we doing here? What we're doing here is we're following God. That's how God led us. That's where he's taking us. That must be the next thing God wants to do that's glorious in our midst. Everyone needs to own that. And in this time that we're entering, I think, uh, at this point as a church, leaders need to step up and serve the church by leading. By taking, listen, I don't say this lightly. I say this with fear and trembling. These, these are moments, there, are, there have been several moments in being a pastor that I really, really have wrestled with. Lord, I don't want to do this. Because there, there is a responsibility. Listen, you know how much easier it would be to just say, hey, you guys decide. You know how much easier that would be for leaders? Because they'd get the monkey off of our back. And if it got hard and got difficult, we'd just turn around and say, but this is what y'all wanted. That's not how God leads. So there's a, there's a time now for leaders to assume responsibility what God has called them to be to the church, to serve by leading and exercising decisions. And I believe that is how God accomplishes unity so that you and I can walk together under this umbrella of what brings glory to God as a local church. Let's let's stand up together. We're just going to close in prayer. Lord, it is always refreshing and helpful for us to get a glimpse of what is in your heart. Oh, Lord, life can be so busy. Our traditions can be so crowding. Our practices can override. But but there's nothing like a fresh glimpse at your heart. Lord Jesus, to see your heart displayed As you pray, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Father, make them one. Just like we're one, make them one. Oh, Lord, that that is a monumental prayer. That is a prayer that almost we don't have a ruler to measure that with. For we are so aware of our tendencies. Lord, I am so aware of my tendency to think about me rather than to think about unity 
to think about what will glorify you, to think about regarding others and a greater purpose as more important than myself. But that's a challenge for us. We need your grace. And Lord, this morning we want to thank you for grace given through your design of the body. Lord, thank you for the uniqueness that is here. Thank you for the diversity that is here. But thank you for the different ways that all of these members, all of us together, contribute into the life of this church. I thank you for what you have done by making us different in order to help us accomplish the same thing. One thing. We're about one thing in hundreds of different ways. And you're the only one who would have thought of that plan. Father, would you teach us now, for this season, how to walk in that setting? with the giftings and the abilities that you've given us, so that your church may come together in a supernatural way and bring forth a revelation of your glory, how you take individuals infected by sin, living in the centrifuge of a fallen world, and you bring us together with a passion for one thing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've got about three minutes, and we're going to start...